subscribe to Tripod Talk Radio for conversations with veterinarians, oncologists, rehab therapists, and other experts discussing amputation for dogs and cats. Find more info, helpful care tips, and a free gift at tripods.com slash radio. Thank you for tuning in to Tripod Talk Radio, where we're spreading the word that it's better to hop on three legs than limp on four. Hosted by Jim and Renee and Wyatt Ray of the Tripod Vlogs community at tripods.com, Jerry's place for canine amputees and their people. Talk Radio, and today is Sunday, May 20th, 2012, and we are honored to have a very special guest with us today. Dr. Nancy Kay has a veterinary degree from Cornell College of Veterinary Medicine and completed her residency at University of California, Davis. Dr. Kay is a board-certified specialist in the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine and has been published in several professional journals and textbooks. In addition to being a staff internist at Upstate Veterinary Specialist in North Carolina, Dr. K has authored acclaimed pet health books, including Speaking for Spot, Be the Advocate Your Dog Needs to Live a Happy, Healthy, Longer Life. Her books and weekly Spot Speaks blog can be found at speakingforspot.com, and you can find book reviews at amazon.tripods.com. I'd like to invite listeners to call 310-388-9739 with your questions, or join us in the live chat room at tripods.com slash chat. Dr. Kay, it's a privilege to speak with you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. Hi, Dr. Kay. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you, Renee. And let's uh, let's get started because uh, 30 minutes flies. So um, I would love to find out. Please tell us why you started teaching pet parents how to be good advocates for their animals. I, I know you have so much going on in your life and everything with your practice. Um, what made you um, feel this was an important area to uh, to start educating people about? Well, great question, Renee. You know, I had a medical scare of my own with a number of conflicting opinions, and it was through my own medical advocacy skills that I managed to avoid a needless surgery. And everything turned out just fine, but... I knew how to ask the right questions of the right people. And I came out of that experience feeling so fortunate and wondered how can I teach other people without a medical background to do the same thing. Uh, I thought about writing a book for people to become better health advocates for themselves, but then I thought, well, maybe that's presumptuous of me. I'll start in my own backyard, which is veterinary medicine. And what, what I've learned uh, from the feedback I've received, particularly from speaking for SPOT, is that people who learn how to be really good medical advocates, savvy medical advocates for their pets, not only do they feel like they come up with the best medical decisions for their animals, but they also come away from the process with greater peace of mind for themselves. And those two objectives are so important to me. So that's really how I got involved in teaching people about medical advocacy. Well, I, I have to thank you for for making that choice to do to do so because <laughs> your book has helped us so much and thank and just you, you know it, it really has and I'm and I'm happy to share what what you've taught us with others in in the tripods community because 
most of us, uh, for most of us, amputation is is the first time we've ever had to deal with anything major. For and what a, dog. a decision that is, huh? My yeah, goodness. it's it's trial by fire. You know, you just yes. get thrown in there and and hope you know how how to make good choices. That's right. Um, well, uh, let's let's talk about your new book, uh, Your Dog's Best Health: A Dozen Reasonable Things to Expect from Your Vet. I love that title. Thank you. Um, I, I really do. It's, a, it's an awesome book, and, and we do have a book review for anybody who uh, would like to read about it. It's on our Amazon blog. Um, so in this book, you uh, talk to us uh, about relationship-centered care. This is what you call it. Uh, can you please explain that concept to us? Happy to. So when it comes to medical delivery of medical care, whether it be in, hum, in the human health field or in the veterinary profession, there's two communication styles that happen between the doctor and the client or the patient. Uh, the patient as pertains to human medicine. The classic communication style, the one that's been around for the longest, is called paternalistic care. With paternalistic care, the medical care provider really is the decision maker. Uh, they take responsibility for making the decision for their patient or making the decision for their client. They really don't want any feedback in veterinary medicine from their clients. They don't really care that much about the special role the pet may play within that family. With relationship-centered care, it's really all about the relationship. The person who's at the other end of the leash is really the team captain. The veterinarian is one member of the healthcare team, but it's the family, the person who shares their home and their heart with that pet that's the team captain. So there's a lot of collaborative decision-making. Uh, can you give this medication three times a day? Well, no, I really can't because I work. Well, then let's try something that can be given once a day or twice a day. So there's a lot of respect for uh, for the person's opinion in terms of uh, they know their pet better than anyone else, and they're very integrally involved in the decision-making. A lot of discussion goes on. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when I first read about that that concept, uh, the, the paternalistic concept, that is. I, I laughed because uh, our first experience with a vet was with a very paternalistic type of vet, and that, that was Jerry's vet who was trying to diagnose his what turned out to be his osteosarcoma. And, um, you know, we just took his word for it for a long time that it was just arthritis and, oh, let's try another NSAID and, and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, the, the diagnosis, Getting to the diagnosis took far longer than I felt that it, it should have. Um, he uh, he didn't diagnose it for a long time, and, and we ended up going to another vet who met us and sat down on the floor with Jerry and started talking to him. And it was like a, a whole different world had opened up to us. She yeah. this was a vet who practiced relationship-centered care. I was like, and Renee, wow. the thing that the thing that you said to twice uh, in your description of this, uh, you said for a long time we didn't get an answer for a long time. And whenever you're thinking, "Wow, this has been a while," we still don't have an answer. That should be a sucker punch to your belly to say, "Wake up! It's time for a second opinion." If you're right. going back and forth and you're not really clearly getting an answer, your pet is getting worse or isn't getting better. Uh, it's time to to step on out and get a second opinion, just as you did for Jerry. It, it did. It took us far too long, and there's a lot of guilt uh, involved there too. I know a lot of people on our on our website go through that. Um, 
they feel really terrible when it does turn out to be bone cancer and knowing that something could have been done a lot sooner. Uh-huh. Um, you know, can you tell us why why do that some vets take so long to finally say, yes, it could be this disease? And and how how do we know that our vet really doesn't know what's going on if the vet won't say so and say, go get another opinion? You know, at what point should we insist on another opinion if, if a diagnosis isn't isn't happening? So, in other words, how do you vet the vet? Um, <laughs> well, you know, it's difficult. And and I wish I could tell you that everyone who graduates from veterinary school is going to do a stellar job. But the fact of the matter is, is some are going to be much more aggressive about getting to the bottom line than others. And And truthfully, probably the ones that are slower getting to the diagnosis are the ones that wouldn't recommend treatment of osteosarcoma anyway. So they're going to try things rather than get to the bottom of what why is your dog limping. Um, mm-hmm. What I would strongly recommend uh, is one never, to begin with, one never has to insist on a second opinion. You, you're entitled to go get a second opinion whenever you like. You don't need your veterinarian's permission to do that. So if you've been to your veterinarian maybe more than a couple of times, the lameness isn't getting better as it should with, for example, if it was just plain and simple arthritis in response to a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medication, then it's time to get a second opinion. And I do recommend if you're going out for a second opinion and you have a specialist in your neck of the woods, go to the specialist. They, the thing that I will tell you is that, that in general, specialists have a way of getting to the heart of the matter more expediently in many cases. Mm-hmm. So if your dog's not getting any better, certainly if your dog is getting worse, or if you just have a sort of nagging suspicion that you're not really clear about the diagnosis, that's when it's time to get a second opinion. It doesn't mean that you will never go back to your primary veterinarian. It just All it means is exactly what it says, a second opinion. And I know a lot of folks are worried that they're going to hurt their veterinarian's feelings. Mm-hmm. I I think that if your veterinarian has an ego that's that big and could be hurt by someone getting a second opinion, let them deal with it and... Besides, what's more important, your veterinarian's feelings or your dog's health? Absolutely, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. You know, I, I know that um, we, we learned a lot from that experience with, with Jerry, and we had a situation with Wyatt last year where uh, a, a regular vet could not figure out what was going on. So we, we immediately went to see a specialist, and, yeah. two, and a half later, two and a half hours later, we, we found out what the issue was. So. You know, we were pretty happy we did that. And in, in the past, if before I read your book, I, I don't think we would have reacted as quickly. Mm-hmm. So uh, really, really appreciate what you're doing. Um, and that's really no different than we should be doing for our own health issues as well. Yeah, exactly. The same thing applies to us when we're, when yes. we're getting treatment. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I, I do uh, I do have a, a question. Let's, let's talk about uh, finances. Um, sure. Finances... They come up a lot in our community, um, especially um, people who are facing cancer therapy for their tripods. And um, when our vet presents us with with treatment options, how can we talk to them about finances and what we can afford and and not afford um, without panicking or or feeling embarrassed? Um, You know, is is it fair to, to ask our vet for any kind of discount or, you know, how can we give our dogs the, the care they need 
um, without bankrupting us. Well, that that's tough, and I'll I'll just put in a plug, you know, and it's always twenty twenty hindsight to think about this, but anyone who has a large breed dog, we've got to be realistic that the majority of them are going to succumb to cancer at some point. Mm-hmm. And what I really encourage people to do, particularly if they're the, of the frame of mind to do everything possible, uh, would be to get a health insurance policy for your dog when they're young and healthy. Uh, that means less than a year of age. And then a good portion of the cost of amputation and possible adjunctive chemotherapy or radiation therapy, whatever course of treatment is chosen, uh, a good percentage of that will be covered. And if you don't like the idea of pet health insurance, then as soon as you uh, adopt your new pup, put away $50 a month in a health savings plan for them uh, to try to avoid this sticky situation of you know what you want to do, but it's not affordable. Um, here's here's what I strongly recommend. I, I, I think honesty is the best policy. Just lay your financial cards out on the table. I know it's not easy discussing personal finances with your veterinarian, but I guarantee your vet's really going to appreciate it if they have an understanding of where you're coming from, that you really do want to proceed, but you may just not have the financial resources. They may be better able to offer options. They may be more willing to provide some sort of a discount or payment plan, something that's going to make it a little bit easier for you. In a situation like osteosarcoma, there's often not a lot of choices um, particularly if you're leaning towards amputation. It, amputation is amputation. There's not many ways to do it. Uh, now, I do think in general you get what you pay for, and you might find a veterinarian who will perform amputation less expensively, but do they provide adequate pain medication? Do they provide uh, as in-depth of anesthetic monitoring as someone who's charging a little bit more? So I don't... I really discourage price shopping, but I I do strongly encourage honesty with your veterinarian about your desire, but your uh, possible inability to pay all at once. That was was great advice about the pet insurance. We did get that for Wyatt after what we went through with Jerry. And I want to remind listeners about our previous uh, Tripod Talk Radio podcast that is now available from the author of the Pet Insurance Toolkit that they can find at downloads.tripods.com. But we do have a uh, member in the chat who has a veterinary question for you, if you don't mind. Her dog, Maggie, Maggie is now 12 years old and uh, had a soft tissue sarcoma and is, you know, doing well as as far as that goes. But she recently went in for a geriatric blood panel and, and was wondering, doesn't have the results yet, and was just wondering what your opinion on geriatric blood panels in general. Are those good tests? Is it something people should do when they get senior dogs? Yes, you know, and, and we're talking large breed dogs here and giant breeds of dogs. And for giant breeds, boy, they may become seniors by just six years of age. For larger breeds of dogs, maybe around eight or nine years of age. And and when a dog becomes a senior, I actually recommend going to the veterinarian twice a year rather than the usual once a year for a thorough physical exam. And I do strongly encourage blood and urine testing once a year. And here's the reason why. Just as with us, the sooner that we can document that there's a problem, in general, the better the outcome. So we're looking for things that our dogs may not be talking to us about, yet they're still present. 
so we can get a handle on them as soon as possible. So to Maggie's mom, I, I think it's a really good idea. Thank you. Um, Dr. K, I, I was reading in your blog that you are now doing uh, consulting uh, for pet parents. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, the kind of consulting that I do, it, uh, it's it's kind of specific. It's not giving drug dosages or making diagnoses or anything like that. Really what it's all about is talking with you about your pet. I, I look through the medical records if they're available, and I help guide people through medical decision-making. For example, this last week uh, I spoke with Cheryl. Her dog had recently been diagnosed with a mast cell tumor on the lower leg that couldn't be surgically removed. So we're, there were a lot of different options for her to think about. So I helped her kind of prioritize what her concerns were, helped her create a list of questions for her veterinarian, and talked her through what the different treatment options would be for this sort of disease. So it's not specific because I don't have a doctor-patient relationship. I'm not examining the animal. What I'm really trying to do is serve as a sort of an advocacy coach for the person who is really making the decision. I love that. You're an advocacy coach. I think, I think uh-huh. you have a new title to add to your long list of credits. That's awesome. How, how can you. people get a hold of you? The best way would be to email me. Shoot me an email, um, and it's dr.kay at speakingforspot.com. Oh, that's terrific. I'm sure you're going to get some people emailing you. Um, thank you for doing that service. That's, that's really terrific. Thank you. Um, well, uh, let's, uh, you, you mentioned uh, price shopping uh, about uh, for veterinary care. Let's talk a little bit about that because, you know, we get a, a lot of people who are very concerned about their finances, and I can't blame them one bit. Um, and you might have uh, somebody who, who says that their vet can do an amputation for $500. And, you know, we're, we kind of cringe a little bit because we know that that's pretty low for an amputation. And uh, yes, it makes it us wonder. <laughs> yeah, it, it makes us wonder what kind of care this dog is going to receive. Um, so what are your thoughts about shopping around for everything from, you know, vaccinations to major surgery like amputation. How how are we supposed to know if we're getting a, a good deal or putting our dog in danger? Here's where I like price shopping. I like price shopping for heartworm preventive medication. Mm-hmm. Let's say that you're putting that you're giving your dog sentinel for heartworm pr- prevention. Uh then I I'm happy to have you get it wherever you can find it the least expensive way. When it comes to something much more complicated and something that's signif- that creates some significant risk for your dog, I really don't like price shopping. And I'll bet you if someone really compared apples to apples on that $500 amputation versus that $1,500 amputation, there would be a lot of important things missing from the $500 job. Because to do an amputation for $500 means that that veterinary clinic, if they have all the bells and whistles, they're going to be losing money. Uh, what about pain medications? What about monitoring during general anesthesia? Who's going to be caring for the dog the night following the amputation? I'll tell you what, uh, Renee, you can tell me how you feel about this, but for a dog to go home the evening after an amputation I think is horrific not only for the dog, 
but horrific for whoever is with the dog. That dog needs heavy-duty narcotics throughout the night and nice a nice, quiet uh, environment with narcotics dripping in their vein all night long. Um, and so... Uh, and and I, I also encourage asking how how many times have you ever have you performed an amputation? How many times a year do you perform this surgery? What equipment do you use to monitor general anesthesia? Um, mm-hmm. do, do you have a nurse observing and monitoring anesthesia full time during the procedure, or is the surgeon himself or herself the one monitoring the anesthesia while performing the amputation? Those are really important questions to ask. And in speaking for Spot. Uh, I devote a, a whole chapter to important questions. So there's a list of questions to ask if your veterinarian's recommended surgery. There's a list of questions to ask pertaining to general anesthesia. And I think that if you ask these questions, you'll see that that $500 uh, amputation is not such a good gig for your dog. Mm-hmm. Those are all great questions that we do encourage people to ask, especially when it comes to amputation. But we have some members in our chat room who have... Um, a related question after the surgery, say if a dog has cancer and they're and they may or may not be doing chemotherapy, what are your thoughts about vaccinations once a dog has cancer because of their weakened immune system? Is it better to you know keep them off the vaccinations or keep them up well it, it's a great question first of all, what many people still don't know uh is that the core vaccinations, distemper and parvovirus, the immune, the protection provided by that those vaccines in adult dogs lasts a minimum of three years. So uh, many people still think that they need to be vaccinating yearly. Um, here, here's my take on it. If a dog has a compromised immune system, they really need the vaccines all the more because their body's not going to be able to defend against things like distemper and parvovirus. That being said, what I encourage when dogs are dealing with other major health issues is, one, wait the standard three years before even considering another vaccination, and instead of doing the vaccinations, instead consider what we call vaccine titers. It's a blood test, and it provides a way of knowing if your dog still carries protection against those diseases. And if the blood test indicates that, yes, that is the case, then you can avoid vaccinating that year and come back and do the blood test another the following year. Does that make sense? It does. And another related question that comes up is uh what about flea prevention? If people are using typical, you know, frontline type medications or um during chemotherapy or for a cancer dog, does the same thing go for that type of treatment or should they be No, you know, those those products are just fine to use in combination with chemotherapy. I think the biggest mistake that I see uh, people may be giving their dogs antioxidants for their general health, antioxidant supplements. Antioxidants have the potential to interfere with the effects of chemotherapy, the, the desired effects of chemotherapy. So that that's the main category of supplements or medications to be avoided during chemotherapy. That actually um, brings up kind of a conundrum a lot of our members have because they find products like canine immunity or um, other immune boosters that are that I believe are antioxidants, but they also are have their dog on chemotherapy. So you would recommend that they wait until the chemo treatment's over to start those type of supplements? Yes, absolutely. And and you definitely should mention those to whoever is administering chemotherapy to your dog because. 
those really are contraindicated. Uh, a lot of times with supplements, I say, well, they're not going to hurt anything other than expense. I, I'm I'm not convinced that many of these supplements do a darn mm-hmm. thing, unfortunately. But if you're if you're giving your dog antioxidants, uh, make sure those are discontinued before chemotherapy starts, because what it's going to do is it's going to protect the cancer cells from the effects of the chemotherapy, which is exactly what we don't want. Yeah, we get uh, a lot of people joining, and, and I know that um, when uh, when we went through cancer with Jerry, our, our immediate thoughts were, we need to change his diet. We need to start giving him vitamins and supplements and get him healthy. And now I've I've learned that that's not necessarily recommended, especially if you're going to do chemo because you don't, want to put that kind of stress on your dog's already weakened system. Um, when somebody's dog is, is diagnosed with, with any kind of illness, um, what are your thoughts about changing their diet to something like grain-free or starch-free? Um, uh, how should parents proceed if they want to if they want to help their dog get healthy but they're not sure where to begin? What, how would you approach that? Sure. Um, what we know is that cancer cells thrive on carbohydrates. Uh, They have a harder time thriving on fats and proteins. So in theory, a carbohydrate-free diet, one that's higher in fat and protein, may be beneficial in terms of starving the cancer cells yet provide continue to provide good nutrition for the patient. In fact, there's a prescription diet called ND that stands for neoplasia diet that's made for dogs with cancer. But if you don't make that transition very slowly over the course of at least a couple of weeks, you're going to be in for some vomiting and or diarrhea, which is the last thing that we want in a patient that's uh, trying to recover from amputation surgery and heading right away into chemotherapy. So if you want to make that diet change, I encourage you to make it very slowly. Whenever I'm treating a patient with chemotherapy, I always talk to my clients about complementary therapy. And that's really what you're referring to here when you're talking about supplements and diet change or acupuncture or uh, Chinese herbs, any of those things. I think that the the place that they have is in supporting the patient through the side effects of surgery and chemotherapy. I wish I could tell you that those complementary modalities helped fight the cancer, but we don't have any data that tells us that that's really and truly the case. One thing that I think uh, is perhaps beneficial is fish oil. Uh, I don't know if you've been talking about that in your forum, but fish oil seems to have some cancer-fighting, cancer-protective properties. Uh, And, in fact, I recommend fish oil as a preventative modality. I take fish oil myself for that very reason. Thanks for that. And along those uh, same lines of talking about diet, we have heard some vets, suggest against a raw diet when the dog's immune system is um, is hampered due to the increased risk of salmonella and such. So how's your, what are your thoughts on a raw diet when it comes to high protein for a dog who has cancer? When we're treating a dog with chemotherapy, so I'm really referring strictly here to chemotherapy, we're suppressing the heck out of that dog's immune system. And so a dog that might normally be able to handle the salmonella and the E. coli that's going to be in any raw diet, just about any raw diet, and most dogs tolerate those bacteria just fine, as do we in small dosages. But if we're compromising the dog's immune system, I think we're really priming the pump for getting sick from these 
uh, raw food pathogens. So I'm one who is strongly, uh, and and I'm pretty darn open-minded. If you want to feed your dog raw food, that's fine. But if we're doing something that suppresses your dog's immune system, let's bend over backwards to not expose him to various pathogens. Thank you, Dr. K. Uh, We just have a a couple of minutes left, but... um, before we start to wrap it up, um, I'd just like to let people know, again, that you can find Dr. K's books on our Amazon blog. That's amazon.tripods.com. And uh, I'd like to get to our, our last question here. Um, how do we really know what our, our animal wants when it comes to major things like amputation or end-of-life procedures, euthanasia, um, since, since our vets will rarely say, if I were you, I would do this, what is the best way that we can assess our pet and our relationship with them to make sure we're doing the right thing for them? That's tough, and especially when it comes to amputation. You know, the first thing that you do is you try to figure out if your dog is orthopedically sound enough to be able to manage their weight on three legs. And oftentimes, as you know, with osteosarcoma patients, they've they've already become three-legged. They're carrying around a painful leg. So the first thing is, are they orthopedically sound? But to the heart of the question, is it reasonable to ask your dog to do this? It may sound really corny, Renee, to say this, but I strongly encourage a lot of nose-to-nose, eyeball-to-eyeball conversations with your dog and a lot of just laying there together and thinking time. And... uh, there's no crystal ball that's going to tell any one of us that, that for sure we're making the right decision, but I think by having those sorts of conversations with your dog, is there, is there still that spark there? Truthfully, you're never going to know with 100% certainty, but you're the person who knows that dog better than anyone else, and he's in very good hands with you in charge of making that decision. And Wonderful advice, point, and I hate to interrupt us, but I do no, want to point right. people to speakingforspot.com for more information, and thank you, Dr. K, for your time. We certainly appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Until next time on Tripod Talk Radio, learn more about canine amputation recovery and find the best gear for three-legged dogs at tripods.com. Thank you for tuning in. Subscribe to Tripod Talk Radio for more pet amputation tips from experts. And claim your free gift just for listeners at downloads.tripods.com slash podcast.